Are you happy? Are you grounded? Are you connected to the things that matter to your life? Or do you find yourself diverted into scratching the itch of boredom with the jingle-jangle distraction of checking your phone or sliding down a YouTube rabbit hole or turning on the telly, old-school style? How present are you? Do you celebrate your wins before scurrying onto the next task like a hysterical little rabbit on a hedonic treadmill? When was the last time you climbed a tree? If that sounds like the sort of question a crystal-dangling, hippy-dippy, dream-catcher, ayahuasca flower child would ask, maybe you just haven't been paying enough attention to how you pay attention. Sometimes, to get a real micro-focus and a macro-perspective, you need a life-changing event to force you to think things and say things and ask things that are deep and grounding and often, more than any other questions we face, deeply uncomfortable. Wow, what an amazing episode this week. I've just recorded the interview with Stuart Diver. You have to listen to this all the way through. Don't, do not allow yourself at any point to lose interest in whatever random uh, rabbit hole we might be going down uh, because Stuart's an incredible person, one of those people who just leaves me at the end of the interview going, man, there's, I've got a lot to learn from this guy. I kind of want him as my friend or priest or something. Uh, for those of you who might not be in Australia or who weren't alive 20, what is it, four years ago uh, and don't remember the Threadbow landslide, you might not know the name Stuart Diver, but he was uh, the sole survivor of one of the great tragedies in Australia, which was that um, in 1997 on the 30th of July, middle of winter, uh, 25 minutes to midnight um, in the most popular ski resort village in uh in australia uh threadbow well one of uh there was a massive rock slide a mudslide uh there'd been water leaking underground and a road slipped away and took two ski lodges with it uh and it wiped out 18 people they thought it was 19 people but one of those 19 was Stuart. he was in bed uh asleep with his wife lying next to him. They were 27. He was 27. They were young. Uh, and uh, there ensued a multi-day excavation rescue effort uh, up, up up above on the, on the ground. Nobody knew whether anyone was alive. They thought they were just digging bodies out of a mountainside. They didn't realise that for 65 hours, Stuart was lying in his bed entombed in mud and rock with just a couple of inches in front of his face and uh, not knowing whether he was going to live or, or die. And after 54 or 55 hours, they realised that he was in there and it became, uh, you know, just a news event that, that transfixed Australia. Everyone was watching this attempt to get this bloke out of this mountain slide as he was entombed there. Nobody knew what condition he was in. And it was an 11-hour process to drill him out. And he became a celebrity, obviously, you know, went on 60 Minutes and did all that stuff. And and then a couple of years later, he met another woman. Um, his wife had died next to him in his in his bed in the landslide. She'd drowned. And, uh, and that woman, uh, three years later, married him. 
And right after their honeymoon, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and ultimately she died as well. So this is a conversation that as well as being just amazing because he talks about what that experience was like, is really philosophical and sort of spiritually stimulating and has given me a, a new perspective on how petty some of my worries and self-recriminations and anxieties are about the pandemic and the lockdown and so on. Because life has thrown a lot at Stuart and he has come out of it with an amazing uh, outlook on things. For the first portion of this <laughs> of this conversation, he and I sort of share our mutual loathing of social media and digital devices and uh, and parental overreach and why we're so afraid for our kids and so obsessed with materialism. So if that doesn't float your boat, do stick with it uh, because it goes somewhere good. Stuart's speaking to us uh, now because he has a new podcast called The Elements uh, in which he dives into incredible human stories of people's resilience against, uh, against the elements, against the natural elements at moments of natural disasters. Uh, that's being released this week, so you can find the first episode, which is about the Sydney to Hobart tragedy on your podcast app. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with the one and only Stuart Dyer. skiing a lot when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I started skiing since I was a baby. And, um, yeah, so mum and dad would, would go up, we'd do the Victorian resorts on the weekend, uh, and then we'd come up to Threadbow for the school August school holidays in those days and do two weeks uh, up here. So we used to, uh, didn't have a lodge or an apartment like uh, happens these days. We actually camped in a little tent at uh, one of the picnic grounds just down the road from Threadbow, and we'd spend two weeks in the tent cooking in the combi and skiing every day. So it wasn't, um, yeah, the most pleasant of surrounds, but I, yeah, certainly loved the uh, loved the mountains and and really got a yeah you know, a, a love for this place by uh, by doing that. So and that's uh, stayed with me forever. And were they very sort of were they the cliche of the hardy Scottish people who uh, you know who are who are extremely yes. tough and resilient when it comes to yeah I don't, yeah I don't think it's a, a cliche I think they are I mean I think the Scots you know are famous for it and I think you know my mum and dad are, uh, are two prime examples of it and I think that you know they instilled a lot of that into me in my life and it's probably given me um the grounding and the basis that I needed to get through the uh, few things that I've been through in my life. So, you know, we, we talk about it, but I, I think, you know, the Scottish are hardy people and they, um, yeah, they definitely made sure that we enjoyed life, we travelled a lot, but there were very few trimmings. Mm. And were you good at school? Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I loved school and yeah, and got uh, good grades all the way through. And uh, yeah, what did so you? Was, and when you when you were in that age, when you were in adolescence, what did you want to do with your your life? You it's really funny because I, I I remember actually at school, you know, we went around. We were doing work experience in year ten, and we went around the the class, and everyone's going, oh, doctor, lawyer, blah 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 blah. And I said, actually, I just want to be a ski instructor. And everyone's laughing. <laughs> oh, you know, Stuart, your grades are a lot better than uh, what you'll need to be a ski instructor. And I went to do work experience and I did work experience at Falls Creek um, as a ski instructor and as a lift operator and then I did the following week with the national parks uh, in Victoria and rode a snowmobile 
wheel all around the high country inspecting huts and doing all this sort of stuff. And I got back from those two weeks and they're going, oh, so, you know, you've had your little uh, play in the mountains, you know, as a year 10 (laughs) boy, Stuart, you know, and so now will it be a doctor or a lawyer? And I said, no, still a ski instructor, sadly. So (laughs) that was it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's funny. I'm just thinking about your parents coming to Australia and having had the option to go to Canada. My grandparents left Europe uh, after the Second World War. They were refugees and they and my grandmother went to the I mean she she had basically no education she was a tailor and uh and so she went to the where all the big boats were leaving Europe packed jam-packed with refugees and they were like you can go to the United States or Canada or Australia and she had no understanding of geography so she goes which one's further from here and they were like, Australia. She goes, I'll take that one. Yep, <laughs> she wanted to get as far away as possible. Yeah, um, yeah it's so- funny. My mum and dad never, like they didn't go back to Scotland for 19 years after being here. So yeah, it was a, they, they definitely just wanted to get away. So you leave school and uh, and did you start out becoming a ski instructor immediately or did you go? No, no I went to uni. So I did a uh, degree um, in hotel management, um, which was good, four years. And uh, yeah, got to travel a little bit uh, doing that uh, and went overseas and did a few things and then got back from that and basically decided I didn't really want to uh, spend my life working in hotels with uh, drunks on the other side of the bar and uh, made the choice that the outdoors was more for me. So then I went from that and did a year's traineeship with an outdoor education company in Victoria, uh, which was great. And that, you know, really reinvigorated my passion for the great outdoors and the mountains. And my mum had been sort of one of the leading instigators in you know education in victoria with outdoor education and how important that was for kids especially from you know inner city melbourne schools i was a north fitzroy boy for my secondary school years we moved up to inner city melbourne because mum and dad had uh, yeah my dad worked in melbourne all the time and just commuted from geelong so yeah so i'd had that experience and yeah still loved the outdoors and wanted to share that with people so i did that and worked uh for yeah a company uh in victoria for a year and then uh opportunity came up to uh come up to threadbow and uh be a ski instructor and uh mm. yeah so i came up and um and took that up in 1994 and have been here pretty well ever since it's, it's i mean it sounds great that that uh that straddling of the the kind of hipster enclaves of melbourne in fitzroy i don't know if it was back then but it certainly is now and then also the outdoor aspect of being in geelong i i enjoyed a similar sort of thing in sydney where i grew up in the you know west of sydney but had a farm out well we didn't but our friends did so it was as much it was as good as mine when you're 15 years old everything everything that you yeah, can use right. is basically yep. yours and so had the, had endless adventures both on sydney harbour and then out at the farm and one foot in in both camps um it's interesting there's something something in the first episode of your new podcast uh a bloke is talking about the the sydney to hobart and he says you know the the fact is that ultimately you're when you're out there you're totally on your own like that people yep. can fly overhead and they can throw you some assistance, but in reality, it's just you and nothing else. Did that resonate with you? Yeah, 100%. I mean, all the stories um, of, you know, everyone who's in the episodes of the podcasts, you know, resonate with me and there is that theme that comes through a lot and that is, you know, there's only really one person who is really in control of your destiny, what's going on in your life, and that's you. And I think the outdoors and being out there and doing some solo bushwalks or just even skiing on your own or even riding your bike on your own, it's it's about you. 
decisions you make, you know, in that moment, in those split seconds, you know, can affect and change the rest of your life. And I think that, you know, we we rely on people and I love relying on external people. I've got a, you know, a great psychologist. I've got, you know, great family and friends around me. There's a, there's a lot, you know, that we rely on others for. But at the end of the day, if I look at my life and the everything I've been through in my life, it really does come back to you as an individual. And I think, you know, the Elements podcast shows that um, that it is those individuals, regardless of rescue teams around and all of that. It's 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 what their makeup was, how resilient they were, what skill set they had that gets them through those traumatic uh, circumstances. I mean, some people just temperamentally hate the idea of putting themselves in situations where that's the case, right? I mean, some people just want to be surrounded by all the support structures of modern life and of modern civilization and the idea of intentionally doing something where it's just you and the elements is horrifying. Are you repulsed by that notion or drawn to it or do you have a conflicted relationship with it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I'm from the school of same as my parents, probably you know the school of the, um, hard knocks, where you um, where you go out and a, a little bit of pain um, is uh, is something that's always good. Um, and I'm not talking about you know beating yourself up or doing anything, but you know you go out. You know, an example of yesterday in Threadbar, it was a total, complete, and utter blizzard, whiteout, minus seventeen degrees, wind chill, um, and I was out skiing on the mountain. My ten year old daughter was out skiing on the mountain, and you're getting absolutely blasted by the wind etc it's freezing cold but it was probably the greatest day skiing you know I've, I've ever had in my life it was just the conditions the snow was amazing so for me you know and if you know my daughter's complaining about cold hands or cold feet I like that fact you know yeah well let's try and warm them up and see what we can do but you know for for to get that benefit of something amazing in life sometimes it has to come with a little bit of hardship and I think that what we're doing in society now let's just jump straight to the straight to the chase here mm. it's uh mm. you know we are not putting our children through any of that you know there's there's so many kids that just spend their lives you know either on screens or sitting indoors or being mollycoddled they just never ever get out into the outdoors they never get put through any of that real physical hardship and you can mm. do it through sport there's a lot of different ways you can do it you know i was just lucky that we did it in the great outdoors but you know and and if you don't get to experience that when something comes along that is a little bit hard and you don't have to go through any major trauma but just something that's a little bit difficult i think we ha- we're just not programming our kids on on how to work their way through those things and i think that's going to be detrimental as we go forward why do you think that's happening? Uh, I think, I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of a myriad of factors. Um, you know, probably, you know, I'm not going to jump on the smash social media bandwagon. But, oh, you know, please there, go there ahead. Is... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a constant evangelist <laughs> against social media. I did a whole yeah. show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival about why social media is ruining everything. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I think that's obviously just one jigsaw piece in a larger... It is kaleidoscope of concerns that people seem to have which i agree seem out of proportion to the actual threat yeah absolutely i I think what we're doing is we we are just over protecting our children you know we and you go back you know and they're cliched lines but you know we used to walk you know five kilometers to school and no one even had any concerns and we'd walk ourselves home and we'd make our own little after school snack whereas you know the majority of kids now and, and it's come through the effects of media 
um, telling us that it's unsafe out there and there's all of these people out there who are going to come and get our kids, all of all of that sort of stuff, that, that high level of fear that's perpetrated by the media, um, coupled with then the backing that up with another form of media, which is the social media, um, and, and just getting all of these platforms that are constantly undermining our faith in each other as human beings and that we are actually intrinsically really good people. We actually all want to look after each other and sure, we're going to have our ups and downs. So these children are being brought up in this environment of fear. And so they're so protected that when something actually really does happen that actually affects their individual lives, not not someone who's overseas or someone that you saw on Instagram or something else, you know, but actually someone real in your life, you know, yourself, um, yeah. we, do, we don't have the ability to deal with it. And I, you know, so, they, 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 you know, as you said, it's, ne- it's never as simple. You can't just pinpoint one thing. You can't say it's just the education system and schools are letting kids down and doing all that sort of stuff. It's, it's not that at all. There's some amazing things happening out there in the world. There's some amazing educators. There's great parents, you know, but you look at even just parenting now, you know, the time constraints because of the crazy materialistic society we live in that both parents are having to work because otherwise they can't have the big house and the two new cars and the holidays and the everything else. Whereas, you know, in when I was growing up, a lot of it was one parent worked or one parent worked full-time, one part-time, you know, especially when the kids were being bought up. You know, my mum and dad, we never owned a TV. We never had any of those trappings, yet they spent a lot of money on travel and these great outdoor experiences, but we never had any of that really materialistic stuff. It was always hand-me-down skis. It was hand-me-down this. It was all of that. We were only allowed to ski every second day because they didn't want to, um, you know, they they basically couldn't afford to buy ski lift tickets to go skiing every day. So, you know, we, we they spent their money on things which had a real benefit um, for for me um, in growing up, and I think that we've we've lost our way in society, and that the the new massive screen TV, the all of the trappings that come with our this pseudo wealth that we all believe we have, <laughs> um, mm. yeah, is 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 being really detrimental to our children. Do you find it tricky as a dad? I mean, I'm a dad of two of twins of uh, who are almost four. And I gotta say, I mean, especially in the past eighteen months with the pandemic, I've put, I've used digital you know, devices way too much. I park them in front yeah. of the TV when I shouldn't. I know I should be getting them out more, and I do my very best. But my goodness, it's easier to give in and give them uh, Bluey or Peppa Pig than it is yeah. to you know try to encourage them to use their imagination to create something out of the the tree in the backyard. Yeah, 100%. And we do, and we have, you know, and we and I fall into that trap as well. I mean, my daughter's 10 and a half and, um, yeah, there's definitely screen time there, but it's very controlled. And I am fortunate, you know, where I live, uh, you know, it's easy to say, get on your bike, go for a ride, do all that sort of stuff. So I am fortunate, but you still have to do it. You know, so the things like playing guitar, um, reading books, you know, it's the – you know, read it, read as many books as you can. It's amazing if you're imagination. You don't have to put a kid in a white room, you know, with a cardboard box and, you know, that's how we're going to get imagination. <laughs> we can still have all the fun things around us. It's it's how you control it and the time that you use. And I think what you just said there is exactly what the problem is. They're, they're, it's it's just easier to park them. And, and, and our parents would have done the same. You know, they parked you in front of the TV. This is just the next level of that. And it's easier to do um, for us because you just go, yeah, what? 
whatever, you know, everyone's got a device and, you know, you can go to a restaurant and you give your kid your phone and they sit there and watch the movie rather than sitting there having conversation, you know, and talking yeah. to other people, their friends and their mates. And well, I think we've, you know, we've, we have, it's become so easy for us to take that easy option and let them do it rather than, as you said, even in lockdown and even in all of these times, you know, go outside and, and, and climb a tree, but, oh, no, you're not allowed to climb a tree anymore, are you? Because that's too dangerous and you might fall and you might hurt yourself. Like we've, you know, we've, I, I, you know, I, I tell people I broke five arms and two collarbones when I was in primary school. Um, mm. And that was probably because <laughs> my parents weren't watching as closely as they should. And I'm not saying that's the way to Maybe go. there's a happy but, medium. Yeah, that's right. There's got to be somewhere in between. Um, yeah. But that was because I was just out adventuring the entire time. Like we didn't have mm. TV. We didn't have anything. We didn't, you know, everyone used to say at school, oh, you must, you know, you must love music and records. And I'm going, why? And they're going, well, you don't have a TV. What else do you do? You must be. <laughs> and I'm going, no, I don't do that. I just actually go outside and ride my bike. Yeah. I'm aware of what old fogies we sound like waxing on yes. about, about this. Know. You know, in my day, we so used to sad. go outside and <laughs> climb a tree. Uh, but I, it is funny, Stuart. Yesterday I was I, I caught up for exercise with a mate of mine who has kids who are good friends with my kids, and we went for a walk outside. Uh, a, a pandemic, a COVID-safe uh, walk, and my son was uh, wanted to throw something in the the harbour, a little stick to make a boat out of it, and there was a ledge of with sandstone going straight down into the harbour, with probably about a oh, two metre uh, drop, a um, like a six foot drop, and um, I, I we just kept walking, and he was playing, sort of kneeling on the edge and throwing like sticks into the water, and my friend stopped and like looked really alarmed and was like, is there a, is there a ledge or a, is there a ledge under there that I don't see? And I was like, no, it's just a drop straight down. And he's like, are you okay? And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure he's going to be okay. He's almost four. Like I don't think he's that much of an idiot. And there's, it's not like anyone's going to push him off the edge. I don't think like, and if they do, that's going to be a, a, a big learning experience. He wouldn't have died if he'd fallen off. He just would have, you know, and it did make me realize how, how sensitively we've set the dials on our concern about kids at the moment. Like I, yeah. I remember there's a, a woman in the States called Lenore Skenazi who founded Free Range Kids. She wrote a book called Free Range Kids and, uh, and she, she's, she cites some survey where if you poll Americans about at what age do they think it would be appropriate for them to allow their kid, for example, uh, instead of going into a shop with their child, just parking across the road and letting their kid go into a big supermarket and ask the cashier where to find something and then buy it. Uh, this was a poll question that was done like during the eighties and like in the eighties, people were like, Oh, you know, six years old. Now yeah. it's something like 14. Yeah, that's right. And, and where's that come from? I mean, I'll refer back to you know what I said before, Josh, it's, it's, it comes from fear. Now, where is that fear? How have we instilled that fear into our society? And the, the, the drivers are, sure, it can come through conversation between parents and between each other, but the real drivers are total misinformation and how things are represented from the larger, wider media. And mm. that is now perpetrated by social media. And so you end up with, if you want to believe that the world's full of pedophiles and it's hugely unsafe, then you can, you can believe that because there's plenty of supporting garbage information out there that'll say that. But we actually know that the statistics don't um, don't back that up at all. You know, no, it's, yeah, and, it and so 
Yeah. But people seem to be under the misapprehension that, that things like abductions and, and so on are even remotely worth worrying about. And I should always oh. add the caveat that if you know someone to whom this has happened, of course, that's tragic. Everyone is a tragedy. We're not dismissing that. But the number of like children who, while walking along the street, encounter some villain who you know kidnaps them or something, that is just not happening in any kind of proportion that is worth no. sparing a single thought for. There no, is, it's actually there le- it's happening like less pedophilia. in society now. It's yeah, happening much less, less than it was. And so. to the extent that to the extent that there are pedophiles and violent people against kids, it's usually they usually committed against kids they know. So yes, it's, it's much, much, much more likely to be your brother who is yeah. doing something bad to your kid than yeah. them encountering something as they're walking along the street. But yeah. yeah. And that's, and this is, so how do we get, so for me, I look at it and go, so if we're trying to make a difference and make a change, how do we get rid of that fear um, that is, you know, that is absolutely throughout um, society at the moment in regards that, that fear and that misinformation. And in my mind, the only way to do it is to get back to the the grassroots of, you know, who who are we as individuals? Who are we then as a collective society? And what is it that we actually want it to look like? You mm. know, because if we if we don't get back to that core, we're just on a slippery slope. And 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 this is, I mean, they're large generalizations because um, you know, there's amazing things happening in society and a lot of, you know, incredible people out there doing incredible things with their kids, you know, all around the world, all around Australia. But um, yeah, there, there's definitely uh there's definitely a trend, I think, going in a direction that we want don't want to be going as a society. Mm. Well, it's a very Western thing as well, isn't it? I mean, if you're in Bangladesh or Namibia, you don't really have the luxury of coddling your child um, in, in all likelihood. This is something that we've sort of become, I guess, cushy enough to do. Yeah, absolutely. The entitlement and all of that sort of stuff comes from, you know, what we do in Western societies. And, and yeah, you have to go back to it. It's the false gods, um, you know, of money materialism all of these things you know my status on uh, on instagram and social media etc all of these false gods that we've got we've actually lost the way of what is you know important in life and and when you when you come back and you go through you know reflecting on my life you know i've had an amazing life an amazing upbringing everything that i've done in life is i've been provided with some great opportunities but i've also had some you know huge traumas in there and and there's nothing like a really good traumatic um occurrence in your life to make you refocus on on what's you know truly important and i think if you look at you know just doing the the podcast the elements if you look at you know going through that and listening to those people who've been through traumas, they all come back to that same thing. You know, it's all about the key beliefs and values that you have. You know, do you care for your fellow man? You know, do you, you know, it's all of those really, in, or woman, um, it's all of those really important mm. key basic things. And I think that's, we're, we're missing that. You know, we we put so much importance on other things and um, h- how you get back to that. You know, I, I do it by being in the outdoors and trying to have some simplicity in my life, regardless of all the complexities that come with work and family and kids and everything else. But, um, you know, that's how I try and do it. But I think we need to do more of it. Do you use the disasters and hardships that you've had as a way of resettling or reframing or refocusing your priorities today? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think I don't think you can go through, you know, like myself. I don't I I lost the the two loves of my life. Um, you know, two wives um who taught me a huge amount about myself. I don't think you can go through 
you know, something that traumatic um, and come out of it and not learn anything um, and then not, you know, for me it's having the ability to be able to reflect on those traumatic events and say, okay, so what is important? And and it does. It takes me at times. I, I go down those crazy rabbit holes. So it takes me times. Sometimes I have to, you know, reverse it a bit, reflect on it and say, but so Stuart, yeah, and the, a lot of the work I did with my psychologist was all about what are my core beliefs? What are my values? Let's link that all back to how you're living your life now, what you went through in your life, um, you know, previously, and then work out so that's what you focus on then to to go forward with your life in a positive way you know and mm. i wouldn't be it's currently we're looking you know 24 years um after the landslide in threadbow um where i'm sitting now and the only reason i can sit here talk to you about you know everything in my life you know not be sitting in a dark room in the corners you know bawling my eyes out is because i'm focused I've done a lot of work with my psychologist, but I've done a huge amount of work and difficult work on myself to get to that point. And that relies on knowing who I am and where I'm going and how I want to get there. And it's, and, and it's been, I've been tripped up so many times, but because I have these core beliefs and values in my life, I know that is where I'm rooted and it's going to be okay because I will get through that and I'll come out the other side. And I think that what we're missing, if you went around and asked a lot of young people or some young people today, let's not overgeneralize what their, what their true values and beliefs are, they would go, what? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I yeah. think so we're missing that. And it doesn't, I'm not talking religious beliefs. I'm not talking any of that. I'm talking about, you know, what is it that is actually at your core you know what's your spirit? Who are you? And and then then how do you how do you live through um, through every, just day to day living? You know, and that's um, I think it's a big question for us. How do you find that? Because a lot of for a lot of people it's not obvious. And maybe you need maybe you, I mean maybe you don't need, but maybe it helps to have a life altering tragedy or trauma to give you clarity about it. But in yeah. the absence of that, how do you find it? Well, I think what you have to, we have to as a society start having discussions about it. I think that, you know, there's less and less people involved in formal religions, as I call them now. And I think that that used to give people a little bit of a grounding if you didn't have that from your parents or from education or from whatever. But I think that we need to look at ourselves and ask ourselves the questions of what, you know, these are big questions, but what what is it I'm actually doing here? Is the first thing I need to do in the morning, get up and take a selfie on Insta to show what happened from last <laughs> night. Or do, do, is, is, that, is that what I'm here for? Is that the core? Or is the first thing I want to do when I get up in the morning, you say, well, I've got a child. How am I going to make her life better today? Or what am I going to do to try and contribute something into the world? And there's a huge amount of people like in Australia doing that you know, already. Um, but there's also well, a huge the, amount of people I mean, who are not. <laughs> one of the well, that's true. One of the things about a child is it doesn't it re, it removes the option of you being self absorbed to some extent, yes. doesn't it? I mean, you yeah. you just have to like even although, when you don't want to, you have to fo- be focused on another. Human although well. no, no, you don't. I mean, there's plenty of kids who are brought up by totally absent parents. You know, and, no, and sure, the, that's the, true. If you're a halfway you decent with, human being, yeah, that's then, right. And then, there you go. And so that's it. So if you look at that, the people who would work out what it is that they believe in or what their values are are basically 
the decent human beings and you know did that come from their upbringing that come from wherever i think we need to force these conversations you know on people like i i hate sitting around and talking to people about the weather although the weather's important in a ski resort we need some snow etc but you know it, it, i i like to have those in-depth conversations with people and and how you have them and where you do it i mean there's some great social media platforms where you can have in-depth conversations but um there's also a, a lot of noise out there where you can't have those conversations and i think for us we really need to say let's get rid of the noise let's get rid of that stuff that's just cluttering up our brains and let's get back to the fundamentals of who it is and who we are and 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 what it is that we are and do we actually want to contribute to the world if you make the decision that you don't then that's fine just go off live your selfish lifestyle or do whatever but um i think the majority of humans actually do want to live a really positive life they want to contribute to the their society their family the people around them and i think that that we we need to start having um yeah those more difficult uh conversations with each other Mm. um take us back to to threadbow then to to that night just give people a significant minority of my listeners are in the states so uh you you may be in the unusual situation of not being a mega celebrity to 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 people who are listening (laughs) (laughs) um what happened Oh, well, basically, you know, I was uh, in uh, in a staff accommodation unit in Threadbow um, in 1997 and there was a, a landslide uh, which took out um, our four-storey apartment and the apartment above. Um, I ended up uh, being uh, basically buried uh, alive uh, for 65 hours um, under about 8,000 tonnes of rubble um, and you know, within the first couple of minutes of the um, building uh, collapsing, my uh, my wife, uh, Sally, uh, at the time uh, died. Um, she drowned uh, with the amount of water that was flowing down the hill. I um, somehow managed to be able to hold my head uh, above the water and uh, then, yes, yes, spent the next 65 hours on my own um, lying uh, you under still, that building. And- the two of you were still next to each other for that Yeah, time. absolutely. Yeah, for that whole time. And so I didn't move for that whole time. Basically, I was pinned, um, had yeah. about two inches gap above my uh, above my face, which was the, the ceiling um, of the building. And yeah, and I basically stayed in that spot um, next to Sally for those uh, 65 hours. And um, had you guys me, been Had you guys been asleep, Stuart? Yeah, we were. Yeah, it was 11.35 mm. at night. What, so, do you yeah, remember we the first asleep. time you woke up? What, what you woke up to? Oh, just a roaring noise. And um, I actually thought it was a pl- low-flying plane coming down the valley in Threadbow. Um, and then I realised it was a bit more serious than that. And then there was a lot, obviously a lot of crashing. And and then basically there was a very dull lights and then it went completely pitch black like cave darkness. Um, and then, yeah, I realised and we were in a, um, yeah, in a situation that was, uh, wasn't that great. Uh, there was no way out. Um, and then the water obviously let go all of the pipes, et cetera, above us let go. And so then the cavity that we were in, you know, totally filled uh, with water. Um, and, and were you still, just to picture this, are you still yep. lying down on your back on the yeah, bed com- yep. with a, yeah, yeah. completely yep. encased, sort of encased in, in mud and yep. rubble except for above your face. Yep. So all around. So I couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And what had happened is when the uh, building, in the process of the building collapsing uh, on top of me, um, the back wall pushed in and it pushed the bed. We had a wrought iron bedhead and that pushed Sally 
and that pushed the wrought iron bed head down onto the top of Sally and she ended up being pinned to the bed. So she was when the water came down, she was unable to lift her head up uh, to get her head out of the water. And because it was pitch black, you couldn't see anything, we couldn't do anything. And so, you know, I, I tried, you know, to stop the, the water flying into her mouth and, you know, it was obviously didn't work out that well. So, um, yeah, within a so couple of So her head minutes, was, a bit, yeah. was a bit lower than yours yeah, because she right. was bumping a, the back of her head against the, the wrought iron bed head yeah. and you could, you could keep your head above the water. Yep, and that was that. So yeah. she couldn't, um, yeah, she couldn't lift her head. So, yeah, and that was, you know, when I look at, you know, Sally and, you know, the way that, that she died in those traumatic circumstances. Um, yeah, I, I, the 65 hours I spent there just trying to physically live, um, was also a very long time, um, for me to process a lot of things, um, mentally and emotionally. Um, and obviously a huge roller coaster for me. You know, I, I tried to end my life a couple of times just cause it was basically freezing, zero degrees would have been a high of probably four degrees where I was and went to minus four and I was in my boxer shorts and it was wet and muddy and you know I lost 15 kilos of body weight um mostly fat obviously just um just trying to survive uh through that time but I you know all all of that it was still a long time to process a lot of what was going on in my life and I think that you know that fundamentally made me realize probably not in great detail but what it was that I was living for and you know that was that I I wanted to get out I I I wanted to be with people again I wanted obviously to live myself but you know the thing that I tried you know that I prided myself on and that's being able to care for others being able to look after people I hadn't been able to do that for Sally you know and that was hugely devastating um but I wanted to sort of get out and tell people look look I did you know I tried to save her I just you know I was in a situation where it just I just couldn't do it you know there's 8000 mm. tons of rubble on top of us you couldn't do it so there's all of those sort of things so yeah I mean that's definitely, and then you know, obviously, the work that I did um, in the months afterwards um, with a good mental health professional uh, definitely. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I want to, but it was. I want to get to that. Um, and when when did you say that you tried to end your life while you were in there? How do you do that when you're? How do you do that yeah. logistically when it's, you're in tomb and right. die in a freezing dark? Yeah, uh, very difficult. But I I knew that if you if you hyperventilate, you can actually go unconscious. So if you just breathe in and out really really fast and you do it long enough, you can get an overload of oxygen in your body and you can actually go unconscious. And I knew I was so cold that if I could just get unconscious for a little bit that hopefully the cold would take me and I would die. So that was one way. I also knew that there was a lot of glass around me because the wall that had collapsed behind, we had a, a gla- glass cabinet in it. And so, and obviously I didn't, I couldn't see anything, but I knew that I was lying on a lot of broken glass, um, which I found out when I got out by the amount of cuts I had on my back. But I, um, I, and I, but I couldn't find a shard of glass that was big enough to try and, you know, to, to cut my wrists or to do some damage to myself. So yeah, I was definitely driven, you know, regardless of how strong and resilient and all of those things, you know, I believe I was, I'm Mm. just a human like anyone else. And I was driven to, to a place where I just, there was, there was no, you know, I saw there was absolutely no way out. Um, and, yeah. and there were a lot of times on that site there, there were a lot of thousands of rescuers working over the that period on that site. 
Did they you hear cut. any of them at the time? Yeah, absolutely, the, the whole hours. time. And I yeah, couldn't right. work out why they couldn't hear me. And so they would right. come and they would go. And when they went and there was silence, were you, I didn't you're realize, yelling and yeah, screaming at them? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And they could they could never hear me because I was just so deep down because we were on the basement apartment. So I was a long way down. Um, and so, yeah, that that became increasingly frustrating. And regardless of your will to live, there are, there are some points um, where I got to where I just thought, I, can, I, you know, I cannot go on. And, and I, I say to people, you know, to try and explain what it was like there if you're sitting um if you try and lie in in your bed like as you are now um in a nice warm room have the tv on do whatever you want stay there for 65 hours straight right it it is a, a a bloody long time so you know for me to be lying there you know next to the the body of my dead wife um not knowing what had gone on outside the building you got to remember that so i i didn't know whether the whole world had ended whether there'd been a massive you know nuclear holocaust and it, it all you know everything was gone i had no idea what was going on so you know to be in that situation for that long was terrifying um and yeah and, and i got driven to those lows and i think that you know fortunately for me um i, I couldn't uh, I, I couldn't act on that but um you know may, maybe i would have maybe i wouldn't have you just you never know but i um yeah i'm glad i mean i, I guess out. it also it also depends whether or not you think that you're going to make it out like uh, if you don't think, if you think you're going to die there anyway, then yeah. why not do it on your own terms? I suppose rather than waiting to just waste away. Whereas, uh, do you remember whether or not when you were contemplating killing yourself, you were thinking, uh, "Let's just have some mercy for me," or whether you were thinking, "Even if I do get out, I wouldn't want to live." No, 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 no. One hundred, completely the opposite. It was basically, "Let's just get this to end." I need. Right. I, I am in so much pain physically, mentally, everything, um, that you get to that point of, yeah, I, I don't, I just, I, this this has got to end. I don't know how many more hours. And I, I don't have a clock. I didn't. I don't have a watch. I've got no idea what no. the time is. I don't know how long, I've, how many days or how many hours I've been there for. Um, but, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I look back at it and go, it's sort of like I'm talking about someone else being in that situation yeah, because yeah. I, I, I look at that. That person, that Stuart Diver, who you know went through that and was in that building, and I still look at that in my mind and go, I can't believe that anyone could survive through that. You know, and, and humans survive amazing things in the world, you know, every day. But I look at that as an individual and go, you know, with the temperatures, with Sally being there, with everything that was going against me, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing that I. Um, I mean, I can't got, imagine. Got I can't imagine Stuart what your brain was doing by hour like fifteen, twenty-five, thirty-five. Because are you? Are you able to touch Sally at this point? Yeah, yeah, she's right next to me. Yeah, she's so right she next was, to you. So you're you can yep. feel her next yeah, to you. How long yep. had you had you not, had you guys been together? Uh, so we'd been together for seven years. So yeah, mm. yeah, we we knew each other well. Um, and it was uh, yeah, and she was you know I was only 27 at the time, but you know that was the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, um, you know, and she was mm. an incredible young person. Yeah. So yeah, it was, a, it was a devastating loss and to not be able to say, yeah, you know, there was no goodbyes. There was no anything. It's like a car crash. It just happened two minutes later. You know, the love of your life's, uh, you know, dead and lying next to you. So yeah, I can, you know, I, I, I look at that and think, you know, it is amazing. The human mind, not just my human mind, it is an amazing thing and what it did, during that time to keep me both physically alive and you know mentally 
able to get through it um, was pretty incredible. I, I, you know, I won't go into huge detail, but it took me, I never, ever fell asleep because if I had, I would have, yeah, I wouldn't have woken up. The cold just would have taken me and that would have been it. So yeah, I was awake for the whole 65 hours, but my mind took me to these amazing places. So I'd be in the desert, in the Sahara, buying rugs off, off some rug I was going to ask, yeah, did you, did you yeah. hallucinate? Because, I mean, the, oh, absolutely. The, the sensory overload must have been beyond... Yeah what your, yeah. your physical brain can take. Yeah, that's right. So, it, and, and that's the, you know, it, the, the human mind is, is a, you know, incredible thing. And that's what it did. It took me away and then it would bring me back to reality when we heard a noise or you heard something going. And, you know, if you talk to the rescuers and the paramedics and the doctors who finally got me to the end, like I, I was nearly dead when they got to me, like I was, mm. you know, they, they, the cold, I'd, I'd run completely out of any energy. You know, I, I was, I was done. So I didn't have very much longer to live. Um, but the, my mind still, the, you know, the moment that I heard the rescuers um, above and they, they were basically getting closer and closer um, with a little camera that they drilled down um, through the multiple slabs to, to get down to where they thought I might be um, was, uh, yeah, it, it just clicked me straight back into as if I'm talking to you now mode like in which when you're talking you know that's 55 hours in before they they got to me um or mm. before they made contact with me um yeah that's the human I mean, mind it, is, sounds, it sounds almost like a like a psychedelic trip when you're talking about being in the sahara buying rugs and so on while you're, yeah. while you're in there they're yeah. freezing is it have you ever done a psychedelic was it comparable to that no, nah, man, I never have, but I've you know I've read uh, quite a bit uh, in in that area, and I know yeah that that's what it and that's what the the human you know mind does, and mind just did it naturally because it knew it was the only way that I was going to survive was to to take me away from you know the hell that I was in, um, yeah, and it did that, and it would bring me back, and then take me out and bring me back, and that's also a massive roller coaster because when I came back, I was always gravely disappointed that I wasn't in the Sahara. Of course. <laughs> He's like, oh, no, I thought this was just part of the psychedelic dream. I can't believe <laughs> this is real. This sucks. But it's true. <laughs> you know, the thing is, that, but even then your mind starts playing tricks on you. What is the reality? You know, where are, are you here? And I knew that there were others in the building and the bit that kept on kept me going because obviously, you know, 18 people died um, and I was the only survivor. Um, I, I just thought, be patient, Stuart. They're just rescuing everyone else. You'll be fine. They're, you're on the right. bottom of the building. They've got everyone else and they're going to get to you. Did you ever think that you might be in hell or something or some like other place? Nah, I, I knew I was alive. Right. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that it hadn't ended. I knew I was well and truly alive. So, yeah, it was just uh, can you hold on and get to the end? How do you know that? Uh, you don't, um, but you... Yeah, you just, I mean, you, you, the reality in between these hallucinating dreams, every time I came back to that harsh reality, I, I knew I was alive and I knew that I had to, you know, physically do everything that I could to try and stay there because I, I just wanted to get out. Mm. So in the in the movie of Inception of your life, the base level of reality was was clear. It was different from the others. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yeah, 100%. Um, and of course, while all this is going on, the whole rest of the country and probably the world is fixated on this rescue mission. Certainly Australia was. And at the time it was, it was increasingly not a rescue mission because as, as, you know, minutes turned into hours, turned into days, it became a body salvaging mission essentially. And everyone thought that nobody was in there. Um, and then all of a sudden you hear voices. What, what gives you the sense? You say that you've been hearing the rescue 
going on all along, what made you aware that all of a sudden it was worth screaming extra loud it was, and trying to actually get their attention? Because it was so close. So as they dug down and dug down and got through the slabs and come down towards me, they were drilling in, putting the camera with a little um, microphone and speaker on the end of it down the hole so that where they got that, it actually came into the cavity where I was. So, oh, right. Yeah, so I could. And can, and can you see things or is this is it dark even during the day? What are you, what are you seeing? To- total cave darkness the entire time. So I can't. Right. I could stick my finger in my eyeballs, couldn't see anything. So I can't see. So you don't know that there's a camera down there? No, I've got nothing. I can through. just hear. Yeah. I can hear right. a hear a voice. It was actually where that where it came through was closer to my feet, um, so I could hear. Yeah, I could hear the voice, and you know, they said, you know, rescue workers above. You know, can anyone hear us? And you know, they would have said that a thousand times over the. And sorry, is that is that days. voice from the rescuer coming out of a microphone, or are you hearing yeah. the person actually? No, saying? no, that's coming out of the, his little microphone on the end of right. the camera. Right. So fairly primitive. You know, yep. twenty four years ago is the technology that they had, but yeah, still mm. that was it. And so yeah. And I just said, yeah, yeah, like I can't, re- I can't remember exactly what I said, but yes, yeah, I'm, I'm here, you know. And then he came back because you can imagine, you know, not, um, not understanding <laughs> after that many days that someone would yeah. actually be alive. And so then he checked again, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm here, um, you know. You come and get me, <laughs> and so then. And but then, sadly, at that time, I thought, did you think, "All right, it's over. I'll be out in a second. And then it takes. Yeah, I did. What, a dozen 100%. hours to get and, out. And I felt, and this is the you know, amazing thing with the human body is, you know, I, the adrenaline rush and everything going through me. I was, and even through that day, as it took another eleven hours for them to get me out, um, I thought that I was, uh, yeah, I thought I was uh, just going to wander down the pub and um, and catch up with everyone, thinking that everyone else was alive. You know, in the building, and right. we'd all get together and have a chat about. Wow, that was a pretty uh, crazy thing to go through. You know, I had no idea of what had actually gone on, um, and no one obviously was telling me. Um, and then I had no idea that it was going to take another eleven hours uh, to get me out, which was probably on top of the trauma I'd been through. <laughs> yeah, fairly traumatic mm. as well, just because of the I had human contact then which was great um, in able to talk me through things. Uh, but then it also makes you realise that if you don't get out, um, you know, what you're going to miss. Yeah. And, of course, on the surface, I'm sure that all of the all of the emergency services up there, once they realise that you're there and that you're alive, uh, suddenly become a lot more concerned about making sure that they don't do anything that could kill you, knowing that what a vulnerable situation you must be in. They can't just go tunnelling in uh, willy-nilly in case a gigantic piece of concrete smashes you in the head. Um, yeah, that's so it. They'd be gravely, <laughs> gravely disappointed. But the yeah, big ones that I never realised was because out. I'd been lying flat for so long that um, it's like it's called like when you have a crush injury and sometimes uh, in the old days when the trains came together and someone got crushed in between the two train carriages um, and then they, they were alive and talking and as soon as they released it, all the toxins mm. came up and they had a heart attack and died and they thought that the similar thing was going to happen to me. So that right up until the very end, they still thought that I, was, I wouldn't survive getting out um, because I'd been so flat and they had to put me vertical to get me out. Um, they, they dug down, they were the slab above me they thought that's where i was so then they had to dig through that next slab to get through me and yeah it was a it was um it was yeah it would have been just hell for them um yeah. to, to to do that and get me and but, are you um, thinking at the time gee this would suck if i get so close and then and then something oh, happens that's, that's all i could it. think of the whole day that's yeah. all that went through my mind so i had these huge emotional lows as well and highs but so they would dig 
for um, 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off to give me a, a break, 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off to give me a break, the paramedic Paul Featherson and the rest of the team, but he would come down the hole, the team. So they had no contact. They drilled a little hole where they could get to my head was about all they had. Um, and, you know, finally I got some some fluids, um, but they didn't want to give me too much because they didn't know what physical condition I was. And then mm. they exposed my feet and then they were able to cut uh, um, into my ankle and then uh, put in um, a, a drip. And, yeah, so, I mean, it was a hugely technical day for them. And for me, it was just, yeah, yeah the same roller coaster I'd been through before making human contact for those 55 hours, it just went on and on and on for the next 11. Mm. And I always talk to people who are outside and watching it and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I, and I think, yeah, I mean, it was definitely – massive for everyone who was watching it on tv and doing all that sort of stuff but it was um yeah pretty ordinary being there as well <laughs> i can Im i can imagine when you say they would go 20 minutes on and then 10 minutes off to give you a break what were they giving you a break from from the because they were cutting noise the jackhammers the concrete saws the you know everything so it was just and, and they were really worried obviously about what mental state i was in um yeah. so they knew because i there was no human contact while they were doing all of that because everyone gets off the side except the guys digging down and trying to get to me so then oh, i see the so they're not talking yeah. you through what they're doing they're not saying no, okay we're gonna have no, to no, just no. go over here no. and no, no, no. So I'm just lying there. You imagine lying there with a concrete saw just going above your head, jackhammers the entire – and the whole cavity that I was in just filling with dust. So I'm choking mm. on dust again. Then they'd come back. Then Paul Featherston would talk to me again, bring me back around. You know, then I'd go again. So, yeah, it was um, – yeah, I mean, it was hugely traumatic for everyone, for those rescuers. It was, you know, what they went through um, to, to try and get others and then, you know, to finally get me, you know, must, was, a, was a living hell. I mean, I've spoken to them afterwards and i know the the toll that it took on a number of those guys um yeah. so yeah it's uh and yeah. and you can't you can't lift your head your hand to your face can you by that by then i could i'd actually moved about uh two feet um towards where the camera was originally so that the camera was shine was pointing straight at my face um uh -huh. so I so you had, sort of shuffled down. So I've shuffled down where I was. So there was a little bit of space at the end of the bed because obviously I'm still lying on the bed basically, but it's covered in mud and rocks and broken glass and everything else. So you can't feel the mattress or anything anymore. I'm just, you know, lying in a pool of mud. Um, so, yeah, I, I slipped down a little bit and then, yeah, I could see them. So, or yeah. I could, and they so could see, when they they could see my face. Right, I see. And then they, if they send down some water in a, in a, a little what is it a pipe then you can grab that and you can put it in your mouth they didn't no, send no, any no, that no? that came or through they managed to come in sideways um and yeah then they ha they handed that so the first fire rescue um guy that came down he yeah his hand came through as a glove that's all i could see right next to my head so they'd managed to pinpoint where my head was and then from that then the paramedic was able to come down after they'd made a bit of an assessment and then but i was only allowed to have a tiny little sip like one teaspoon and they'd take <laughs> it away again because they didn't want to give me too much because they didn't know if i had internal organ damage and all of that sort yeah. of stuff so yeah it wasn't um yeah it wasn't that pleasant Unbelievable. And I assume when they first made contact, they asked about Sally. They asked if anyone was there with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I told them that she died 
you know, in the first yeah. couple of minutes. So then that was, you know, that was a lot of our conversation, you know, with Paul Featherston that day, uh, the paramedic was around, um, yeah, it was around that and what was going on. And, yeah, you know, and he was an amazing guy. He took me, he did the same as the hallucinations. He tried to take me to a very different place from where I obviously was physically. And, um, yep. yeah, and that's, that's basically what got me through. At what point do you remember? Did you ask about what had happened, about whether or not this was a, a nuclear apocalypse or a, just something that was localised? Um, I didn't know until three days later in hospital in Canberra. Right. So, Did they induce no, no, a coma when you got out? Or, or no, 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 no. No, it was all good. I got airlifted, went to the Throbo Medical Centre, got packed up and then uh, got airlifted to Canberra Hospital. Um, and so I was fine, lucid talking. I only had, you know, I didn't have any broken bones, had some cuts, had frostbitten feet and other than that, I was unscathed. So, you know, I just uh, was in hospital and they were looking at my feet and trying to work out what they were going to do there. But, um, yeah, other than that, I was fine. And it was a couple of days later where I was, they were saying, oh, we want you to go for a bit of a walk down the hallway and see if you can, you know, use your legs and feet again and I said yeah that's um that's good I said can I go and visit everyone else um because they must be in the same hospital too and my dad had to say uh there's no one else you're the only one wow I guess they didn't have the tv on in the uh, in the hospital ward no they were smart enough not to do that <laughs> <laughs> were your Scots Australian parents religious at all because this is the sort of thing where if you were a person of faith you'd you'd be like wow that's a sign um, you basically, my mum and dad were Catholic. We, you know, I was raised, uh, a Catholic. Um, you know, they were, you'd probably say non, non-practicing at that point. Um, mm. so yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, of any of that sort of discussion. There was a guy, Don Woodland, who from the Salvation Army came in and, you know, he'd say a prayer at the end of the night and, you know, give a little blessing and head off on his way. And, you know, he was an amazing support in everything that he did. But, yeah, there was there was very little um, discussion or questioning at that time of, you know, beliefs or what had happened or or how, did, how had we got here. Um, there's been plenty since. How did you think about it then when you're told that there were 18 other people who died and you were the only person who survived and you came away essentially unscathed? Yeah, I mean, Why? obviously, I've, it, the first thought was, you know, obviously one of great loneliness, um, you know, of, oh, that's going to be tricky. You know, who am I going to talk to about this? Because if you share a like experience, it's a lot easier to talk to people about stuff. So, yeah, it was a, it was quite, it was, it was devastating, um, not just the loss, because I knew a lot of those people because they were fellow staff members, um, but um, yeah, the the idea that oops, you you're on your own now. I knew I'd lost Sally, but I thought if I had all those other people, I'd be able to, you know, at least share um, the experience with them. So you know that went, and I know I can see where you're heading with your next question about guilt and did I have the survivor's guilt? And I can honestly say I've never ever um, felt guilty about being the only one that survived, and that purely comes from the fact that you know it was just a hugely unfortunate situation, and I was just lucky that all the heavy bits missed me and you know i was uh i was able to to get out at the other end
Mm. I mean, I, I wasn't even really thinking so much about guilt, but about the sense of the sense that religious people sometimes have of having been chosen or something, or you know, God having shined a light on them or whatever. That's not. Yeah. that's not <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's good. We, we won't do the guilt one. I mean, the, the 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 bit with that, which is quite funny. I got so many proposals. I got thousands of letters while I was in hospital <laughs> from religious cults, let's call them religious organisations, saying that I was the chosen one and could I please come and. Leave Lead their organizations like this is serious <laughs> full like written like 100 page proposals as to why i was the one so others had that belief uh sadly for me i never had you know, I, I used to joke i do, did a bit of corporate speaking i used to joke you know i got up in the, i got them to fill a bath in the uh in the hospital and i tried to walk across it and sadly i, I couldn't walk on water so i decided <laughs> exactly. maybe i was just like everyone else i mean it's yeah it's one of those things i don't i've never and it, whenever i talk about this i i'd never look at myself as being anyone special. I was just an unfortunate guy who got put in a really unfortunate situation and happened to come out at the other end. And we mm. can read whatever we want into that and we can, you know, we can put our own story on top of that. But at the end of the day, I look at myself as just being the same as you, the same as anyone else who has been in an unfortunate situation in their life. And I think that if there's one thing I want people to look at me and, you know, look at others who go through traumatic situations in is just I, I'm a reflection of the human spirit and the amazing ability for humans to get through things. And I'm just a tiny little speck in humans throughout, you know, generations who've gone through stuff and survived things. And I think, you know, the, the great thing is that I've, at least I've been able to come out of it and talk about it and show that mm. 24 years on you can get through things in your life and, and still live and, and have an amazing positive life. I mean, it's nice to hear that kind of cosmic humility because I, I do, I mean, I was during the bushfires, I was broadcasting every day on on ABC Radio Sydney and um, and on weekend breakfast on a, on the ABC and was you know quite uh, I mean nothing like experiencing it firsthand but sort of worn down and traumatized by the daily by the relentless daily drumbeat of people losing their lives and losing everything they had and I was always a bit perplexed when like there'd be one person whose house didn't get destroyed on a whole street where everyone else's house got destroyed and they'd be like you know it's it's a miracle i can't believe that god has has done has done this and shone a light on us and it's i'm just overjoyed and and i'm always like i always thought well what about all the other people's houses like yeah. if you're saying that god selected your house to not get burnt down are you saying that that like the creator of the universe wanted everybody else's house to get destroyed. That seems it's such like, a bizarre, you know, it's, it's such if, a bizarre if thing. I mean, gonna... If you look at my life, if anyone ever says to me that God made me survive the Threbo landslide, exactly the same thing. Then what was God doing with the eighteen other people that died? Is that just yeah. is just teaching us a lesson in um, that sometimes things don't go that well for you? And I've never been able. I've spoken to a lot of very good theologians and and people. I've never been able to get an answer that even comes close to any description of why that would ever be the case and that God controls anything because it's mm. just complete and utter, it's complete and utter garbage. And, you know, and I've gone through that again. I mean, you know, let's continue on in my, in my life, but you know, the, the, the next experiences in my life, you know, with, you know, losing my wife, Rosanna to, to yeah. breast cancer. I mean, seriously, if there is truly a God, then I've, I've obviously been a very, very naughty boy. Yeah, in some past life, perhaps. Yeah, that's yeah it's right. interesting that you say that there were people who were writing you letters, you know, from religious factions saying that you were the chosen one because 
that, has it not occurred to them that if it wasn't you, then it would have been someone else in there? Yeah. Like if someone no. was going to survive, then someone no. was going to survive. It's like it's a bit like it's a bit like rolling at rolling a rolling the dice and Absolutely. you know seeing it come up as thirteen and going, oh my god, thirteen is the magic number. Well, if it wasn't going to be thirteen, it might have been nine. If it wasn't going to be nine, yeah, it was going to be four. Right. But like let's be very right. um, let's be very honest with ourselves, and that is that. Most um, formalized religions are very simplistic in their nature, regardless of how much they try and complicate it. Um, and so, therefore, um, when you've only got that to work with, you can have very simple, um, you can place those very simple uh, views on any situation you want and it'll seem correct to you. Yeah, um, and I don't yeah. want to be disparaging to people and their beliefs and their religions. I'm happy for people to believe in whatever you want as long as you use it for good and as long as, you know, the basic tenets of, of, of what you believe in, you know, whether they're religious beliefs or not, um, are, are something that's making the world a better place. And so, you know, all those people, you know, thousands of letters from people who prayed for me and that in their mind is the reason why I got out. You know, I thank them for their prayers. You know, what else mm. can you say? But it's, um, but yeah, that doesn't mean that it, uh, that it makes it any truer. No, and I mean, it is interesting to hear your thoughts and for you to cite Rosanna as well, because and we should tell people about what what happened there. Because of, I mean, once you would think that the universe would have thrown you enough curveballs with being buried alive for sixty five hours next to your wife who you've lost, but you found love again a couple of years later, and you got married to Rosanna, who was this the love of your life, and you had a a daughter with Rosanna and is it right that it was like a week after your honeymoon that she was diagnosed with breast cancer? Yeah, correct. So, I mean, and that was, yeah, so you just went, I wasn't that happy that day, I can tell you that much. Rosanna wasn't that happy either, but, um, you know, and then that was a 12-year battle, um, you know, to try and, uh, you know, make Rosanna survive um, longer. So I learned also a huge about yeah, huge amount about myself um, during that experience um, with Rosanna, and you know it was hugely traumatic for her. But it was, you know, there there was a lot that went on there as well. And you know, luckily, um, you know, through that, which was also, you know, she, you know, Alessia should not have, um, you know, probably should not be around um, given how difficult it was to to have yeah, they're my daughter, and so mm. you know that that experience and to and to go through that and to you know then to you know, for Rosanna to die of breast cancer, you know, 12 years after was, um, yeah, it was another, another, you know, trauma that, you know, you can definitely do without. But, um, you know, I've also learnt an enormous amount about myself in going through that experience. And, and it's only reinforced um, that fact of how important it is um, to know who you are and, 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 you know, where you're going and what you believe in and, and, and why you're going there. And, you know, it was a totally different experience. I had, you know, we had all of that time, you know, pre, um, you know, Rosanna's death to pre-grieve her, to, you know, to go through all of that, you know, same psychologist that I've used, you know, for the last 24 years, did an enormous amount of work with uh, both Rosanna and Alessia, who was only four at that time, um, to, to make sure that we were positioned as well as we could, um, you know, to for not only to go through, you know, Rosanna dying, but to also, you know, for Alessia and I to come out the other side. And, you know, I've now lived that experience for five years. Um, Alessia's in a great place. I'm in a great place. And so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to have to go through that, 
but it it yeah it truly reinforces you know why I'm here and you know why I'm in the world because it's um you know I, I want to make sure that that uh, you know that that those you know Rosanna's life was lived for a reason and so if I can reflect any of those traits that she had and any of those traits that great traits that Sally had in my life how I live my life and what I do then um yeah then it's worth uh, it's worth living mm, that's beautiful mate as a, to think of your I guess what the gifts that you can give to Alessia as being the legacy of Sally and also of, of Rosanna um I mean when Rosanna was first diagnosed was there a period after that where i mean if you were a person of faith then that would be the moment at which your faith gets challenged that's like the book of job type stuff like are you serious like you would just look at people for whom everything goes right and you'd go what the fuck is going on in this universe that i've had to endure that and now i might lose a second loved one like how do you put that in context yeah, I mean, what well, what what happens is it's very it, the, the the there's a lot of um, similarities between uh, you know the landslide and between um, between Rosanna getting breast cancer. In the fact is, what you you just end up going into survival mode, and you know anyone who's been through an experience of themselves of having cancer or you know a loved one having cancer is you go into survival mode. So it's all about it's about surgery and it's about chemo and it's about radiation and it's about do do do. I right. just want this person to live. Then it's right. about twelve months later, once all of that has sort of settled down, where then you go into the whoa, that's this is pretty heavy. But by then you're thinking, oh, we're going to beat this. It's going to be in remission. So we're going to live life happily ever after and then you try and process all of that again i i never you know definitely my you know my psychologist says one of the greatest things you can ever do is feel sorry for yourself give yourself the ability to say you know what that is really 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 crap what has gone on is not where you thought you were going to be the outcome has not been that great but the key is you can't do that forever so at some point you've got to make the choice. Okay, that was crap. I feel really sorry for myself, but now I'm going to go back to living again. And there are times, even now, where I go back into that. I've actually I feel really sorry for myself. Like I'll just wake up and I'll just go, this that is crap. But luckily I've been given the tools and the ability to be able to turn that around and say, but you know what? It's actually yeah bad experiences. But have a look at x y and z going on in your life today or what's going to go on today or you know what is there in your future and 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 focus on that and it is you know it always sounds you know corny in some ways but it is about drawing that line in the sand taking all the good things out of those bad traumas which sounds you know weird in one way but all of the things that i've learnt from those experiences and use them to drive me forward in a positive way and and that's really the key because we all go through traumas big large small in our lives and they're all different you know they they're no no one's you know loss of a partner is the same as someone else's they're all different and unique experiences but it's that ability to say okay that was really crap, but how am I now going to go forward and, and how's that going to look? And I think that, you know, that's that's what I've learned to do. Um, and, you know, and Lee Sales wrote a book, I think last year it might have been released, and mm. she went through this, she got the ABS to go through the statistics um, of the likelihood of 
the third Mrs. Diabo dying, which sounds a bit macabre, and, and I didn't do it. She obviously did that. But um, it's, it's because it's statistics, there is no more likelihood of the third Mrs. Diabo surviving longer, having a shorter mm. life than anyone else. And that's, that's the right. crazy yeah, thing yeah. in the world, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, which is, you know, and I hope that is the case because otherwise I'll be um, unmarriable <laughs> in the future <laughs> if you look at that. But, like, you know, that, yeah. that's life, you know. And I look at it that now, like you know, it. I'm, I'm I'm in a relationship, you know, I'm in a relationship now, you know, I've I've found another wonderful woman in my life. And you, you could look at that and go, like, what are you doing? You know, you've you've lost two wives so far. But what I learnt from those two beautiful women in, in my life is what an amazing thing an intimate, loving relationship can be. And tragically they were both cut short, but that's no reason why I shouldn't say that was amazing for me. Wouldn't that be something that I should aim for in the future? Not saying that, oh, that person's gone. I've got to get another one to fill the void. It's nothing mm. like that at all. It's just saying I've seen what a loving, intimate relationship can do for me and it can do for others, you know, because we get to share each other's life. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't I want that again? Do you ever feel sorry for people for whom everything goes their way? <laughs> Only if they if they end up being entitled assholes. It's hard not <laughs> to be. Let's be brutal. It's hard not to be when everything goes your way. I mean, that's what privilege does, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard to stay grounded. It like, is. Look at, but, look at yeah. you know, look at the, the 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 psychological diseases of modern Western civilizations. They they yes. are mostly aligned with prosperity, essentially. Yeah. You know, yeah, and not not of, having not gone through anxiety. That's right. Yeah, there's not a lot of anxiety when you're down a coal mine every single day working, no. you know, backbreaking labour eighteen hours a day. There's anxiety mm. when you're on Instagram all the time. Yeah, because uh, you don't have anything else to worry about. It, yeah, it's, correct. It's a tricky pickle. Yeah, I mean, let's go back right to the start of our conversation today when we when we spoke about you know what is it and and that's that's what the problem is in society in that you know not only with kids but with adults we've got a lot of people out there in Western society who have never had any real hardship in their life so we've got a choice you either try and create physical hardship you know emotional hardship through activities like being in the outdoors and you know outdoor education and things like that or even sport and you know all of those things where there's some physical pain there's some emotional pain there's some pressure there's all of those sort of things there's a myriad of ways we can do it we've got to do that as a society because otherwise what we will end up with is a society of very very and I and I'll use this word it's not nice but that of weak emotionally weak people who are unable to actually deal with anything and i'm you know i talk about my psychologist i talk about you know the importance of you know your mental health but i also you know caveat that with saying there's times where periods of three plus years where i've never even spoken to my psychologist you know i'm, I'm done thanks very much you've given me the tools i'm out i'm doing it on my own now and anyone that thinks going and seeing a psychologist is easy and it's just like yeah tick that box have a nice day is tricking themselves you know it's brutally hard work and the hard work comes from you doing it yourself so you know i don't i'm not a proponent of the you know the american model of you have a therapist for everything you know your cat's got a therapist you've got a therapist you see them four times a week that is going to the other extreme at some point you have to make a choice as an individual as to what it is that is going to be the best for you to go forward and and how does that 
what work do you need to do that? And I think the the issue that we've got in larger parts of us Western society now is we're either not being forced to make those choices or we're not willing to have those conversations ourselves. And that's going to be detrimental to us going forward because, you know, there's there's two two businesses I'd be getting into if I was um, coming out of school now. And one is laser tattoo removal and the other is psychology because <laughs> number one, in 10 years time, there's going to be a lot of people wanting their tattoos removed. And the other thing is everyone is going to need a, a, a psychologist because as you said the prevalence of these um you know and, and everyone these mental health issues are real to all of these people you know you talked about it before anxiety depression these are real in our society and they need to be treated but unless we step back and actually look at the fundamentals of how we're getting to those points as individuals then we're never going to have a solution and it's just a slippery slope down into, you know, major, major mental health problems for our society. I mean, and there's reflectors in that. The statistics show it, you know, with with uh, youth suicides, with, you know, all of that sort of stuff. We're definitely not giving our kids and the general society enough of those tools to make sure that um, that we're, uh, we're going to have a future where we're really strong and robust and resilient. Stuart, it's wonderful to talk to you. You're doing, uh, if I was religious, I'd say you're doing the Lord's work, but uh, you're doing you're doing humankind's work, I suppose. Uh, the podcast is called The Elements. Uh, it, started, it kicks off with an incredible episode about uh, the hidden, the city of the Hobart yacht race. Do you want to say anything else about it before we wrap? No, just it was a great project to be on, and it's like all those things in life, you know. I always take uh, take new opportunities, and uh, yeah, when Slade and Tim came along and said that they'd like me to be a part of it, it's uh, it's been amazing. I'm looking forward to um, all the future episodes that we get to make. So yeah, looking Fantastic. forward to the launch. I'm looking forward to getting out of lockdown and bringing my kids to Threadbow and uh, <laughs> and embracing the world and the planet and the snow and <laughs> with all of the enthusiasm that you've got. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Josh. Thank you.